hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Wathen here with humanitarian advisor and former director of the Center for International Disaster Information, Juanita Rilling. Morning, afternoon. And we are going to be talking about how NGOs should respond when donations become disasters. This is a tricky subject. It's something that Juanita has worked on for a very long time. But before we delve into the issue and how NGOs can respond and prevent this issue from taking place in the first, in the first place, we're going to do some icebreakers to get to know Juanita a little bit better. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, icebreaker number one. You, people at home may not know, are a world champion rower. You have won more than 70 medals, which is amazing. If you were going to be in a boat racing, who would your three global dev women picks be Ooh. to row with you to the championship? Okay, so in the interest of time, I'm going to pick women I've worked with because if I pick women I admire, we'll be here all day. Sure. So uh, let's see. Okay, uh, first up would be uh, Lori Bertman, who is the CEO of the Pennington Foundation and uh, who founded the Center for uh, disaster Philanthropy and the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Alliance. Lori is an idea hamster and every idea she touches thrives. She's amazing that way. Um, second would be uh, Natasha Friedis, who is a co-founder of a relatively new startup called NeedsList. NeedsList hooks up NGOs with local suppliers of goods and saves everyone a bunch of money. And um, she's, she is herself a tremendous person. And uh, let's see, a two-way tie for, for two-seat in the boat would be Barlin Ali, who is a, a diaspora expert at USAID, and or Delphin Konikbaeva, who is at the Aga Khan Foundation also, um, had a lot to do with sort of elevating the status of diaspora and ethnic voices in conversations about disaster relief. All right, that's fabulous picks. You have worked in disaster response for a long time. Mm -hmm. What was the first disaster you responded to and what was your biggest learning? Oh, uh, so my first big one was Hurricane Mitch in um, 1998. And it was, yeah, it was, my, it was a, the formative experience because that's when I had my first experience with, uh, with donations, you know, unsolicited, low priority or no priority donations. And I thought, when I was first dealing with them, I thought, well, certainly this is an anomaly, and it was just a Hurricane Mitch thing. But I discovered that in every disaster afterward, it was the same problem, which, which sort of made me crazy in the response arena. But also, um, I, I've been in, working in disaster relief for about 12 years, but I've been a, a donor for over 50 years, if you include um, Trick or Treat for UNICEF, which was my childhood obsession. But um, I wish so often that I had known as a donor what I learned in humanitarian response. Okay, this is a great segue into the last icebreaker, which is what is the wildest donation you've ever heard of that showed up in the middle of an international emergency? Oh, goodness, there are so many. Okay, uh, oh, okay, wildest would be after Hurricane Charlie, someone delivered a truckload of sex toys oh to the relief site. Yeah. Why? Did anyone yeah. tell you why? Um, I uh, know. I guess disasters bring all kinds of desperation. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, that, again, is the segue into talking a bit about the issue the that we're dealing with yes, here, which crazy. is, you know, we've kind of talked on the show before about the idea of compassion fails 
Like yes. people who really want to do something good so and then it just goes awry. They want to help so much. And yeah. this feels like it falls into that category. So can you just give us briefly, like paint us a picture of what the issue is that we're talking about with these donations? Um, well, uh, after, well, I'll backtrack a little. Back in 2013, Harris Interactive did a, um, an omnibus poll that found that 63% of Americans had donated to disaster relief in the prior five years. So that's about 200 million people. So with that in mind, after most major disasters, you have at least 100 million people who are thinking about how they can help. And in the absence of any guidance from, from anywhere, they look at this horrific footage on television of, of these people who clearly lost everything and are in waste, deep water, homeless and hungry. And they think to themselves, well, those people have lost everything. So anything I send will work yeah. in this situation. If they're yeah. starting from zero, they need... Starting from zero. That's the tableau. So the, the trick is information. Yeah. So the response to seeing you know, the waste deep water, just everything in complete destruction tends to be sending stuff. And often that stuff, things like clothes or technology and whatnot. Yeah. And what, what happens when that shows up? Um, yes, people send, they send what they have as they would do if a neighbor's house were burning down. So um, what happens is in, in major disasters, metric tons of used clothing and household goods and canned food shows up at um, you know, damaged ports and airports and it takes up space that's needed to stage and manage you know, needed supplies. And so all of that stuff has to be moved. And moving it, as, as every logistics expert knows, takes people and money and gasoline and heavy equipment, all of which is taken away from helping survivors. So it's, it's definitely a zero-sum thing. So you're either moving this stuff out of the way or you're helping survivors. So that's the, the, the thing that people don't really understand is that these donations aren't, even though they're sent with the best of intentions, they're not neutral. We're so. talking about NGOs who don't want this stuff to show up. Yes. You need, what you're, I'm hearing you say, your website. Yes, your website. The website. Right, and maybe have a page that's evergreen on your website that talks about effective and ineffective donations. That just is there all the time. So, and you can direct, gently direct people to it um, you know, when they're reading other pages on the website. Yeah, and I guess teasing out of the website is making sure you're updating your social media handles yes. with this information too yes. and making sure you're where people yes. are can, or can actually consume that information. Yep. Okay, so that is prevention. Yes. I want to get into what happens when this stuff actually shows up because it's, you know, it's one thing to talk about, okay, it shows up and you move it. But as you said, that takes money away from the response. It takes a lot of, you know, man and woman power to get that stuff out of the way. What are like, what happens when it shows up in country? Like, what is like, at what point? Who pays the taxes? Who pays the fees? Like, what does that look like for an NGO that's responding to an international disaster? Yes, um, yes, I do want to. Okay, I'll get to that first. But afterwards, let's talk about interception because there is an interim step between educating people before they start collecting stuff and then when it arrives. Um, so just yeah. re remind me or help me remember. So um, yeah, so after the stuff arrives, um, and this is where it really helps to have good logistics people on the ground because they will know what to do. 
Um, every disaster situation is different. Sometimes local governments or, actually, or host country governments are on scene. And um, I know in, after the Tohoku earthquake in Japan in 2011, some uh, people from the local prefectures were actually turning away donations you know, at, the, at the port. And this is useful if you can do it, but most, often, most times you can't. So to have a logistics person on site who can um, uh, at least speak for the organization. So um, a lot of times donors will send donations to your organization. Um, and the shippers, not really knowing better, will send it there. And it'll have you know, your organization's name on it. But if you're not expecting it, it's really better not to accept it unless you know you can deal with it and manage it. Right, so people will send a box or a pallet of or used shipping items containers. Say, to Oxfam in X country that has yes. just been through a giant disaster. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking of to the Red Cross after the earthquake in Haiti or, you know, to save the children to write. They just write and then they, and then they send it. I, I guess this is getting back to what you were just portending to of the step between it arriving in country yes. and being sent. But can... Can people just send something to a port? Uh, they can. It's, let's see, this, is, this was common practice up till fairly recently, and I give huge props to UPS because UPS will not accept cargo that isn't um, uh, directed very specifically to a person in a location. Um, and this was UPS's response to people doing this, just sending you know, um, shipping containers of stuff to a to a destination with an NGO's name at the top. Okay, so we are, you know, Save the Children and a pallet of used goods that is not going to help the people that you are working to help arrives. Do you sign for it? All right, well, this is tough. Um, sometimes the host or affected country will waive customs requirements. Um, sometimes they won't. Uh, you, if you accept it, you can incur customs fees and other fees, and of course, then you have to you have to manage it. If it's a lot of stuff, you, you it's your equipment. It, you, you touch it, you buy it, pretty much. Yeah, but again, this is you know there's so many variables. It depends on the country. It depends on who's at the port. It depends on whether you know you might want to look at the stuff whether it would actually work with your programs. It makes a difference on whether someone actually contacted someone in the organization to say hey, this stuff is on its way to you. So there are a lot of variables, but the bottom line is you're right. You touch it, you bought it. Would you, you know, obviously this is all very context specific, as yes. you say, but would you recommend that, that organizations accept, the, accept those packages, those deliveries in the first place, or just hands off? Um, this is so hard because there are so many variables and there are also our NGOs who do accept in-kind donations. So um, I, I will leave that decision to the logisticians yeah. and then maybe we can focus on the interim step at <laughs> once because prevention really is so key. Yeah. Um, and prevention has worked. It has worked. It worked in the Colorado floods. It worked after Typhoon Haiyan as well. So not giving, um, not giving recommendations, but if you had to point to three considerations that NGOs take if this shows up on their doorstep during a disaster, what would those three considerations be? Do you have the, um, the personnel and the, and the machines 
and machinery to, to deal with it. You need, um, you need heavy machinery to move it, and you need people to inventory it. You need people to deal with it, to call it. Um, you know, can you handle, can you handle that? Uh, and you need to move it pretty quickly because these things stay in the, in the ports and they, they degrade in the weather. Um, so yes, first question is, can you handle it? Do you have the people in the uh, machinery to handle it? And that really is, you know, and then what, is you, what are your headquarters, what do your people at headquarters say? What do they know about it to find out everything you know, everything you can about the shipment um, to see whether it is, it is coming from, you know, whether someone knew about it. Sometimes, you know, communication during disasters can be spotty. Um, so those are the first two. Can you handle it? Does anyone in the organization know about it to be able to respond um, both in handling it and to respond to the donor? Mm-hmm. And the third one I just give back to the logisticians who are miracle workers generally yeah. in, these, in these situations. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe number three, could be like, are you prepared to pay for that <laughs> <laughs> with all the taxes and fees and everything? The taxes and fees and then, yeah, the, just to manage it. Because people do send, um, you know, the these donations are heavily weighted in the direction of used clothing. And used clothing in damp environments um, degrades, it gets moldy, and mold is in large quantities, it's a toxin, so you have to be careful how you deal with it. It also is um, you know, a perfect nesting grounds for rodents and snakes and things. So that's a, you know, you have to, there are health considerations too in dealing with um, unannounced yeah. clothing donations, yeah. So for anyone who has just tuned in, I am Kate Wathen here with humanitarian advisor Juanita Rilling talking about what NGOs should know when donations become disasters. We are taking questions, so if you have them, please feel free to leave them in the comments or tweet us using DevXTV. We do have one question. This is from How Matters, and it says, what is it about U.S. Uh, U.S. and rich countries that elevates stuff to this level to becoming a solution in a disaster. Does our stuff give us a sense of security or worthiness or power? Have our emotional and social lives become so vacuous that stuff fills these <laughs> gaps? <laughs> yes, probably, sadly. Uh, I suspect that our relationship with stuff in our own lives may be directly correlated to how much stuff we believe is necessary to send to, quote-unquote, those in need. Yes, you have... Um you have wisely answered your own question. Yes, we are, in, in the United States especially, we are a generous and acquisitive society, always have been. Um, this problem, though, goes back to, um, it goes back at least 100 years when people collected stuff from their houses to help after the, let's see, ni- uh, 1917 Halifax munitions ship fire, try saying that five times fast, and you know, even in, in, uh, in after disasters in the 1950s, there are photographs of heaps of used clothing donations. So this goes back a ways. It goes back to, you know, farther than our current obsession with stuff, which is sort of heightened and on, on steroids. But yes, it's because um, we are comforted by our things. We like our things. We are acquisitive and we are generous, and so we give our things. It's what we have, and that's you know, it's it's pre- that's pretty basic. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of see this in all parts of our work. Yes. You know, you see it with donations because, you know, it's coming from a good place. You want to send, you know, you want to see someone wearing the shirt that you provided them. Or, you know, why is it that a lot of people will go on a mission and post all over Facebook to, like, show people that they're doing, you know, something that they feel is really good. I think the visual component is huge in that. The sort of dark side of this, though, is that people share their excess. You know, they don't 
People don't donate their best clothes. They donate the clothes they were likely to get rid of anyway. So there is the sort of the, the underbelly of generosity, which is you're giving you know, people things that you actually don't want, which is another, another whole discussion and another whole psychology. So if, you know, it's a win-win for the donor if you can give away something you aren't going to use anyway, and it helps someone, or at least you think it does. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not like, if it's not something that you would like to receive, <laughs> not something very nice that's yeah it's questionable the motive in that and if you were in a, involved in a disaster yourself you would probably choose new things to build your new life rather than right, right. I mean, and, I, and one more point on this is a lot of what people donate could be repurposed locally like the local uh, goodwill and salvation army outlets and the, the children's national children's center would love to have people's gently used clothing yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Like if I have just gone through the most catastrophic moment of my life, I don't really want someone's birth cell so. phone or like old underwear. Yeah. I don't know. You have that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you, have yeah. plenty, you have plenty of that, yeah. Right. Um, and I mean, this is a whole other conversation too, but there's the issue of you know, companies will send expired medicines, also very dangerous. You know, maybe coming from a good place because they're antibiotics or something, but there was the incident in Indonesia, was it? Yes. Yeah, um, in 2005, after the, the tsunami, when um, the, uh, the countries that were affected had all their stocks. They, they didn't need any drugs, and they sort of put out the word that we're, we're doing well for pharmaceuticals, thank you. But they nonetheless got 4,000 tons. Let's observe a moment of silence for 4,000 tons of unrequested pharmaceuticals um, that had ultimately had to be disposed of and to dispose of pharmaceuticals is, is expensive you have to dig pits and line them and you know take all kinds of precautions and to to dispose of all of those pharmaceuticals cost more than three million dollars and that's three million dollars that didn't go to building schools or roads or didn't get getting people back in their homes right so this is again it's a huge cost to the NGOs who are helping people and to and to affected people themselves yeah, yeah. So we only have about seven minutes left. So I want to get back to intervention. The, yeah, the intervention, the interim. You know, earlier we were talking about prevention and about getting, you know, getting the word out on your website and all of that. I think something else we've talked about that you have spearheaded for organizations is setting up like a phone line. I mean, can you just talk a bit more about like from the NGO side, like how do you mm -hmm. intervene? It is, uh, it is good to have someone on your staff who, who talks to people about donations. Um, I did, I, when I was at USAID, I spoke quite literally to hundreds of people who had already collected stuff and wanted me to tell them where to send it. So this is, this is actually an ideal situation because you, you can educate, you're talking to someone on the phone, it's person to person, it's wonderful. So I got a lot of calls. My, my garage is filled with X. Where can I send it? And um, it's good to have someone on staff who, can, who does not talk down to people who do this, but, but encourages their generosity and explains, you know what, that is so thoughtful of you to have done that. But here's the situation. Our organization is doing you know, uh, feedings, uh, we're immunizing children, we're building up, you know, we're, we're uh, building, rebuilding homes. We really don't need what you've collected. But here's an idea, why don't you repurpose that locally or sell it and um, then contribute to our work with the money. And um, in these conversations, it really was heartening for me when so many people had a, had a moment like, oh, 
the, the oh moment. Like they saw it, they saw it. And you, in talking to people, you can help them see um, that what they're intending to send actually isn't needed. It may do harm, but it can be repurposed locally and then send money to support what you're doing. And then after everything's over and you're sending out your mailers, instead of saying, we'd like more of your money, say thank you for helping us do X. We saved X number of lives, we inoculated X number of children. This was reunited your work. All these families. Yeah. yeah, reunited all these families. This was thanks to you, thanks to your support. And here's what we're doing, you know, here. Would you like to support here? So yeah, talking to people makes a huge difference. I can imagine. And you know, to your point about meeting that with empathy and really you know, tapping into the good that yes. people are trying to do, yep. even if it ends up doing the opposite. Yeah, of the that. best yeah. intentions. Yeah, is important. And probably if you're going to have a phone line, maybe not putting like your most irascible employee on it because <laughs> that could easily go very badly. Yeah, we, one would imagine. <laughs> we tried shaming. It does not. Shaming does not work. You does tried not. Evidence-based. Evidence-based. Shaming. shaming does not work. Does not ever work. Okay, so here's what we have covered from the NGO side as far as prevention and intervention. We've talked about putting something on a website, having a page there all the time. All the time. That you can point to. Amen. And the disaster happens, we're putting that on the front of your website. If possible. So people know in like detail of what you need and why. Um, we have social media too, that component. Get out of there. Have yep. the phone line. If possible. Have with empathy. Would you, so... Okay, I'm kind of caught on this empathy piece because I'm picturing an organization that's in real time responding to disaster, having a million different things. Do you dedicate one person to that? Do you give them talking points? Do you have an email inbox? Like what? what uh, yes, to all three. You might need more people, depending. Um, I'll put interns out there. Interns are great for this. Sorry, <laughs> interns. Um, but if you have them, they're just, they're super. Uh, energetic, they um, they really they really do great work, especially when talking to other young people. So yes, the script is helpful because it's tempting to shame. Also, people get really kind of wrapped around the axle about their donations. They feel very seriously about it. And think about it, if you had a garage full of, right? It's your garage. So people they they go to this sort of referred panic. Um, so just you know you you have to understand how to kind of talk people out of their situation and give them a solution for their problem and encourage them to help you. So yes, so having someone on the phone, um, more than one person possibly, like a phone, a phone line, phone tree, um, and the preemptive steps, yes. Yeah. Yep. And then also having an email, maybe dedicate an email to getting all of those inquiries too. The thing about email is once, if you put an email address on your website, like if you have questions about donations, please contact us here, you'll have thousands of emails. Don't do the emails. Hard to keep Don't ahead remember. of it. If you, can, if you can answer thousands of emails then you go. But The phone yeah. lines sound the phone lines, a yeah. little easier. Yeah, and having someone, as you said, who can walk people through. I'm sure people do get angry. It's like they you've do. collected all of this stuff, but you know, this is, you've collected all this stuff as part of a journey of helping these people because now you've collected it and you just need to sell it. Yeah, and that, actually that's key because when people come to you, they're, they're really thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about survivors. They're thinking about what am I going to do with all this stuff. And so it helps to sort of redirect their attention to survivors. This is what survivors need. As far as we know, survivors don't need what is in your garage. So let's talk about repurposing that and then how you can actually help survivors, which we want you to do. Okay, phone line, maybe not an email, talking points, interns, 
interns. Is, is there, we love you interns. Okay. Is there anything else in that kind of intervention stage that you feel is really crucial for organizations to have? Thinking maybe like a way to leverage your internal communications or the people that yeah. you work with to get them. There are actually a out. few really good toolkits out there. Um, the Center for International Disaster Information has a toolkit for NGOs, including a customizable public service announcement um, put out uh, put together by the Ad Council, which is gorgeous. And um, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation also has a, a toolkit for you know people who want to encourage good giving. So you can borrow from those sources and then there's a lot you know there in the last like 10 years there's been so much more talk about this so there are all kinds of articles about it um, that you, you could have enough for a little library on your website about why it's important to give you know wisely give responsibly and not give the stuff you're thinking about giving yeah, yeah. do you have any final messages for the NGOs who may be tuning into this? Or oh, I feel for you. I do. <laughs> I feel for you. It's so important to get out ahead of it. Um, yeah, on your on your website to begin with, and then have the resources ready when people are gonna come at you with use closing. Because I promise you, they will come. <laughs> Winita Rilling, thank you so much for joining us. Bye. So we are, you know. Of course, and we are doing coverage of humanitarian disasters and everything. You can keep up on what NGO, what's going on in NGO world, what's going on in the greater international development sphere. So keep on top of our coverage of that at www.devx.com. I'm going to go ahead and tell everyone to tweet Juanita at, at jrilling. And if you have any questions or follow-ups, don't hesitate to shoot us a tweet at devx and using hashtag devxtv. <laughs>